If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn to Romans chapter 9. We're back in our study of Romans this morning. And by the way, if you're new with us this morning, if you're visiting with us, um, we are in the middle of some difficult passages of Scripture. And so uh, take this morning's sermon on Romans 9, verses 14 through 18 in context. And if you'd like to know that context, then go back and listen to the remainder of these messages during this time. It's kind of hard to kind of pop in and listen to one of these without the larger context. But on we roll, verses 14 through 18. The last time we were in this passage, we looked at verses 6 through 13. Um, And in those verses, Paul began to deal with a crisis, a crisis which he unveiled for us in the opening verses of the chapter. In the first five verses, he expresses deep sorrow and anguish over the lostness of his fellow Israelites, his kinsman redeemer, the Jews who were, for all intents and purposes, cut off from God at this point because of their rejection of Jesus as the Messiah. And in verse five, he says that this is doubly sad because to this Israel belong the covenants and the adoption, the glory, the giving of the law, the promises of God and the patriarchs. And the crisis was, if God had chosen Israel to be his chosen people, then why were they now not his chosen people? What had happened? And consequently, we said, how then can we find any assurance or confidence in our being chosen by God, which is what he talked about in Romans 8, How can we find any confidence or assurance in that if God's election of Israel is now undone? Is our election, could it possibly be undone as well? So the crisis was exhibited, and that's the crisis that he he began to address in verses 6 through 13, which we dealt with last time. And in those verses, the central point of Paul's argument was that God's promises, his covenant, his word to Israel had not failed. They had not failed at all. They had not been undone. And his central reason for that is because not all Israel is Israel. And he went on to explain in those passages that there is a natural physical Israel that is according to Abraham's natural seed. But then there is also within that a spiritual Israel, a remnant within that that is according to God's unconditional election. And then in those verses, he gave us two examples from the Old Testament. First, he gave us the example of Abraham's sons and how he chose Isaac over Ishmael. And then he gave us the example of then Isaac's sons and how he chose Jacob over Esau. And he reminded us in verse 11 that his choosing of one over the other was not based on anything about them or anything that they would do because it was before they were even born. Instead, it was based solely on God's unconditional selection and choice of Isaac over Ishmael and of Jacob over Esau. So because not all of natural, physical Israel was part of this remnant, was part of this spiritual Israel, And furthermore, because the covenants and the promises that God gave were given to spiritual Israel, then those covenants and those promises have not failed. They're not undone. They are still intact because they were given to spiritual Israel. 
But as he's defending the word of God, the promises of God, Paul is most foundationally in that verse and the verses to come giving a justification for God and his fairness in selecting one over the other and in choosing to save some and not others. Now, Paul knows that in saying that, there are going to be those in his day and in our day today who think that to be unfair, right? And so he knows that there's going to be a charge against God, that God is unfair in this. He is unjust in seemingly arbitrarily selecting one over the others. So this is the objection that Paul now raises and is explicit about it and begins to address in the passage that we look at this morning, verses 14 through 18. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures, Romans 9, verses 14 through 18. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that what we hold in our hands we can trust to be the very words of God. Thank you that you have kept this word secure through the ages so that we know that what we read, though it may be hard, is the very inspired word of God. As we seek to unpack this, God, would you give us understanding? Would your spirit aid us in interpretation, but also in its application to our lives. God, I ask in Jesus' name that you would allow us not to walk away from here simply having a better understanding of the doctrine of unconditional election, but its effects on our lives. How, what, it, what the implications might be for our faith and our walks with Jesus. God, we pray that you would be with us as we wrestle with this text. Father, I ask humbly for your help as I seek to unpack this. Give, the, give me the ability so far beyond myself to be able to articulate the truth of these verses with conviction and yet with grace. We ask that you would use this, Father, to build up your church and to glorify your name, not just to make us smarter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the outline of this passage is, is fairly simple, though it may be difficult to wrestle with, some hard, hard truths to, to accept. The outline is very simple. Essentially, it's, it follows the same outline as the passage from verses 6 through 13. 
Paul presents what, what seems to be something that he says that God does, a charge against God. And then he denies that charge. And then, and then he backs up that denial of the charge against God with a couple of examples from the Old Testament. And then he follows that up with a couple of summary statements about each one. And that follows the same outline as it did when he unpacked verses 6 through 13. The charge against God in that passage was that it looks like God's word has failed. God's word to the Israelites had failed. And Paul flatly denies that charge in verse 6. God's word has not failed. And then he goes on to explain why by using the examples of the Old Testament, two of them, Abraham's sons and then Isaac's sons. Here in verses 14 through 18, we have another charge against God that Paul addresses. This time, it is the charge that God is unfair, that God is unjust somehow in choosing one over the other, to which he flatly denies that at the end of verse 7 when he says, by no means. And then he supports his denial of that charge against God with two examples from the Old Testament. And both of these examples are from the book of Exodus that we're going to deal with this morning. One of them are God's words to Moses, and the other is God's word to Pharaoh. But both of them are used by Paul, and we're going to have to wrestle with how do these support his thesis that God is just in unconditional election. Because that, that is his thesis, that God is not unfair, he's not unjust, that he in fact is just and fair and right in unconditional election. So he says that, he, he puts that forth in verse 7. Some of you might say that, that there's this injustice in God, and he says, by no means. By no means is there any injustice in God. There's no unfairness in him. God is just and right in this. That's his thesis that, that he lays out for this passage. And in the ensuing verses, verses 15 through, through 18, he seeks to support that from the Old Testament. Two examples from the Old Testament that are going to try to support his thesis that God is just an unconditional election. So the first is from Genesis. The first deals with the apostle, excuse me, the first deals with, uh, with Moses. It's quoted in verse 15. Look at verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then we have the summary statement in verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now look at verse 15 again. How does verse 15, which by the way is a, is a quote from Exodus 33, how does verse 15 support Paul's thesis that God is just in choosing to save some and not others? Verse 15 on the surface just puts forth that God will have mercy on whom he has mercy and he'll have, he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And, and, and on the surface, all that statement does is restate the thesis, right? That God is just in unconditional election. And if we understand it just on the surface there, on, uh, verse 15, just superficially, that's not a supporting reason for verse 14. 
That would be like Susan and I saying, we've got two twin boys, 16-year-old boys. That would be like us saying to, to, to our two twin boys, your mom and I are going to buy one of you a car. Only one of you. And that is fair of us because we will buy a car for whomever we will. Now, if I were to say that to David, what do you think Jonathan would say to us? That's not fair, right? The objection that God is unjust in electing some to salvation and not others is not adequately addressed just by saying God will have mercy on whom he has mercy and he will have compassion on whom he has compassion. That's just restating the thesis. So there must be something deeper in the context of Exodus chapter 33 that helps to give support to Paul's thesis because the key word here is for. He says in verse 15, for I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion. He's trying to support his thesis. So there must be something deeper there in the context of the Exodus story that helps us to understand and give support to Paul's thesis that God is just in choosing some to salvation and not others. And there is. Now, most Bible commentators will take us back to the overarching context of Exodus 32 and 33 and what's happening in that story. And what's happening in that story is that God has just given the Ten Commandments to Moses. He's given the law on Mount Sinai. And then he interrupts himself to tell Moses the bad news about what's been happening with the Israelites while he's been giving Moses the law. And he says, Moses, I've got some bad news for you. While you've been up here receiving the law from me, the Israelites have been committing idolatry. They have grown impatient because you're up here spending this time with me. They're wondering what in the world we're doing out here in the desert. They've grown impatient. They've prevailed upon Aaron to collect all of their golden jewelry and have melted it down and have fashioned it into a golden calf. And Moses, now they're worshiping the calf. Now they're worshiping that golden image. That's their God now. They're worshiping it. And as the story goes on, God pronounces judgment on the Israelites as a result of this idolatry. And 3,000 of the men of Israel are put to death as a result. Now, we're to note from this that only 3,000 of them died. All of them had committed idolatry. All of them participated in this idolatry and worshiping the golden calf instead of the Lord God. But only 3,000 of them received the punishment. And it's after this that we have the scene of Moses asking to see God's glory. And in part, God's response to Moses and his request to see his glory is this verse that is quoted in Romans 9.15. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. In other words, all of the Israelites deserve to be annihilated because of their idolatry. But only 3,000 of them got what they deserved. None of the surviving Israelites were crying out for God to be fair with them. 
They knew that for God to be fair with them would be for them to be wiped out as well. And so they didn't want God to be fair with them. They wanted God to be merciful to them, and he was. So in Romans 9, as Paul is defending his statement that God is just, that God is fair, and he's right in electing some unconditionally unto salvation and not others, he quotes there from Exodus 33, verse 19. And he says, God is just in this because we all deserve judgment. Because of our rebellion, because of our sin against him. We all deserve deserve that. And it is only his sovereign mercy and grace that saves some of us. As we said before, as we said last time, the miracle here is not that he saves some and not others. The miracle is that he saves any at all. It shows his grace. Because what is fair and just for all of us is to be condemned in our sin. Now that's the normal way of understanding Romans 9.15. And that's what most Bible commentators point to. But if you step back for a moment and you look at that explanation, all it's really doing is restating the thesis again, right? That's really all it's doing. God is just in unconditional election. Why is God just in that? Why is he not unfair in that? Well, because we all deserve judgment, and God unconditionally selects some to be delivered from what they deserve. Yes, that is true. Amen to that. But how does that solve the charge against God being unfair in choosing to save some from what they deserve over against not choosing others to be delivered from what they also deserve. That explanation leaves the charge against God's fairness unchallenged. And furthermore, it it leaves Paul's thesis here that God is just in, in unconditional election. It leaves that thesis unsupported. So is there anything else in this Exodus story that helps Paul's quote from Exodus 33 support his overall thesis that God is just an unconditional election? And there is. But in order for us to see it, we have to go back to the story of Exodus 33. You don't have to turn there now. I'm going to walk through some of these references. You can just jot them down and look at them later. But in the very first verse of Exodus chapter 3, 33, God tells Moses, I want you to go to the promised land. I want you to leave Mount Sinai. You've received the law. You've got the marching orders. Now I want you to head out into the desert, and I want you to start making your way and leading the Israelites to the promised land. But he says, I'm not going to go with you. I'm going to send an angel with you. But myself, Yahweh, I'm not going to be among you because if I'm among you, I might consume you guys because of the golden calf stuff, right? So he says, I'm going to send an angel with you. So then Moses goes to the tent of meeting to inquire of the Lord to say, God, we appreciate the angel, but we need you with us. We've got to have you with us, Lord. So so he makes three requests of the Lord. This is very interesting. In in, in Exodus 33, beginning in verses 12 and 13, in verse 13, he, he, he 
he lists the first of three requests. And, and the first request is, God, show me your ways. Please, please show me your ways. And he says, that I might know you and that I might find favor with you. And so Moses wants to know God more. And so he asks, show me your ways, God. In the next few verses, verses 14 through 17, he lists his second request. God, please give us your presence. We appreciate the angel that you're going to send with us, but if we have any hope as we leave Mount Sinai and head into the desert, if we have any hope of making our way to the promised land, our only hope is that your presence would go with us, Lord. So he asks for God to show him his ways. He asks for his presence to be with them. And then in verse 18, he, he says his final request, his third request, God, please show me your glory. As we set out on this, I, I want to I behold your glory. I want to know who you are. I want to experience your nature. I want to see your glory, God. And then we have God's response to Moses' request in verse 19, which is then quoted in Romans 9, verse 15. Verse 19 of Exodus 33 says this. God says, I will make all my goodness pass before you. All of what it means to be Yahweh. I will, I will make all of this pass in front of you. My whole nature. You're going to see all of this. And I will proclaim before you my name. That's odd, isn't it? It's not what Moses asked for. He asked to see his glory. But part of what God says is, I'm going to make all my goodness pass before you, and I'm going to proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And in your copy of the scriptures, it's going to be all capitals. That's the tetragrammaton. That is the personal name of God, describing his very nature and his presence, the I am, Yahweh. I will proclaim that before you. And then we have the part. That, that, that Paul then quotes in Romans 9.15. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So God's response to Moses' three-part request to know God, to experience his presence, and to show him his glory, God's response to that includes this explanation of the graciousness and mercifulness of his very nature. This means that the display of Yahweh's grace and mercy and compassion is bound up in the very nature and glory of God. And furthermore, because that is so, then the display of God's nature and glory is incomplete without the display of his grace and mercy and compassion. And so we bring that thought back to Romans 9, verse 15. Paul quotes there from Exodus 33, and he uses this as a defense for why God is not unfair in unconditional election, why God is just and right 
and fair in choosing some to be saved and not others. We see now the connection and the support for this thesis. In having mercy on whom he will have mercy and in having compassion on whom he will have compassion, God is displaying the true nature of his glory. And if he were to show himself to Moses without displaying somehow his grace and his mercy and his compassion, then he would not be rightly and justly and fairly displaying his true nature and glory. We could say that he would not be doing the display of his glory justice. And were he not to choose Isaac over Ishmael? And were he not to choose Jacob over Esau? And were he not to choose one to save them by grace through faith over another, then he would not be rightly displaying his true nature and glory, which is what he is about. So in order for us to know his grace and mercy, in order for him to justly and rightly display his true nature and his true beautiful glory, He had to choose to save some, or else we would all perish. And his election, which is to show the glory of his nature, the glory of his grace, his choosing could not be constrained by anything about us or about man and what we do or what we say or what we choose, or else Our salvation would display man's glory, not God's. And his election, the display of his glory and true nature, would be incomplete without the display of his grace and mercy and compassion. And the only way to display that part of his nature, in order to show the trueness of his glory, he had to elect some to be saved. But in the same way, this is also why he couldn't save everyone. This is why he couldn't choose to save everyone because the display of his glory and his true nature are also incomplete without the display of his wrath and justice. And so unconditionally, he chooses to save some. And that choice is made by him alone, constrained by nothing in us and He unconditionally chooses not to save others, and that choice is based on him alone, constrained by nothing in us. And it is all to display his glory. As we said last time from Ephesians chapter 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. And what was the purpose of his will? To the praise of his glorious grace. Unconditional election is to the praise of his glorious grace. So this first quote from Exodus serves to support Paul's claim, Paul's thesis, that God is just in choosing to save some and not others, 
because God is always about the display of his glory, and he's going to do that rightly, and he's going to do that justly. And the display of his glory is incomplete without the display of his grace and mercy to the praise of his glorious grace. So then we have the summary statement in verse 16. Verse 16 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So the it that he says here depends not on human will or human exertion, but on God who has mercy. The it that he refers to here is unconditional election. It refers us back to chapter 9, verse 11, when he talks about God's purpose in election. This is what Paul is laying out here in, the, in on all of Romans 9 and the and second half of Romans 8. So Paul is saying here that, that election doesn't depend on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And that's a great definition of unconditional election. Election is not based on human will, our own ability to choose, our, our own volitional capabilities to choose one thing over another thing. God's election of us to be saved is not based on our choosing him. Jesus said in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. We just read Paul's words in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4 that he chose us when? Before the foundation of the world. We didn't choose him before the foundation of the world. We didn't have a will. We didn't have a volition before the foundation. We didn't even exist before the foundation of the world. And so God's choice of us could not be based on our choice of him. God's election of us to salvation is not based on our choosing him, nor is it based, Paul says, on our exertion. That word exertion in verse 16 is from the Greek root word, which means to run. It's the verb to run. So so God's choice of us is not based on how we run, how we go through life, how we walk in life with Christ. It's not about how we live. God's choice of whom he will save is not based on how someone lives or how they don't live. This harkens us back to chapter 9, verse 11, when Paul says that God made his choice of Jacob over Esau when? Before they were ever born, before they had done anything good or bad. So it couldn't be based on human will. It couldn't be based on how Jacob or Esau lived or didn't live, or how they were going to live, but simply according to God's sovereign mercy. And Paul's assertion here is that God is just in this. He is fair in this, because it is just and right for God to display the true nature of his glorious grace, and he can only do that if he chooses to save some. So the second example, let's look at the second example that he gives from the Old Testament. It's found in verse 17. It also comes from the book of Exodus. This time it is God's words not to Moses, but to Pharaoh that are quoted. Look at verse 17. He says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So this this quote comes from Exodus chapter 9, several verses 
prior to the story of Moses that we read about earlier. So if you, if you want to you, don't have to, you don't have to, but we are going to look at a few passages from there. You can turn to Exodus 9 if you'd like. The context of that story is the Israelites are still in slavery in Egypt. They're in captivity. And God visits with Moses in the Midianite desert. He's still there with his wife and Jethro, his father-in-law. He's been, he's been there for 40 years. God shows up in the burning bush. And part of what God tells him is, I want you to go back to Egypt. And I want you to meet with Pharaoh. And I want you to implore him to let my people go. And in, and in Exodus chapter 9, what is recorded to you is, is part of what is said. So the verse that's quoted in Romans 9 verse 17 occurs after the sixth plague. So we know how the story goes. Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let the people go. So God starts to send plagues on them. Ultimately, he relents. He lets them go. They cross through the Red Sea. They go on to Mount Sinai and then to the Promised Land. But this verse in uh, verse 17 of Romans chapter 9 occurs after the sixth plague, the boils, the boils that showed up on the flesh of beast and man alike. And after that... It says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he he continued to refuse. I'm not going to let you go, Moses. I'm not going to let the Israelites go. And so God says to Moses again, go back to him again. And I want you to tell him what's going to happen, and that I'm going to send another plague if he doesn't let the people go. This time it's going to be hail from the heavens. So if you're in Exodus 9, look at verses 13 through 16. I want to read what the Lord says to Moses, which is the context of where Paul quotes from in Romans 9. Beginning in verse 13, the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. So go back to Pharaoh, tell him to let my people go, or I'm going to send another plague, and I'm going to do this so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Because I could have wiped you out by now. And then in the very next verse we have the quote, from Romans 9 verse 17. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So God had a purpose in Pharaoh being raised up. That phrase there, being raised up, refers to Pharaoh's existence. In general, it refers to his existence. In in particular, it refers to his reign over Egypt at a time when uh, when, when Egypt is holding all of Israel captive. And so God's purpose in raising up Pharaoh and putting him in this place in history was to do what? Was to show his power, to show the power of Yahweh, to show the power of the Lord and... So that his name, the Lord's name, would be proclaimed in all the earth. So we could put it another way. God was using Pharaoh's life to bring glory to himself, right? 
Now, it was a different way of bringing glory to himself than the way in which God was using Moses to bring glory to himself, but his life brought glory to God nonetheless. How? How did, how did Pharaoh's life bring glory to God? It wasn't through his obedience to God. In fact, it was through his disobedience to God, his rebellion to God. Unknowingly, Pharaoh, through the hardness of his heart, played a very crucial, critical role in the Lord's plan to display his power and his glory to all the earth. And the role that Pharaoh played in this story could not have been accomplished were it not for his disobedience and rebellion and the hardness of his heart. Think about it. God's plan, as we see, was to show his power, was to display his glory in all of the ten plagues and subsequently in the Passover and ultimately in his parting of the Red Sea so the Israelites could escape as the Egyptian army, along with Pharaoh, pursued and perished. God's plan was to display his power and his glory in that, as well as his, as his grace and mercy in rescuing the Israelites. That was his plan. But if Pharaoh had relented at Moses' first request to let my people go, then we wouldn't have seen the display of God's power and glory and mercy. We at least wouldn't have seen it in that way. If, if Moses, think about it, if Moses came and said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh, brother, it's time for us to pack up. It's time for us to go. We gotta hit the road. We're going to the promised land. Going back, we're gonna leave you. I know that we're your indentured servants, but it's, it's time to go. Now, if Pharaoh had said to that, okay, brother, no problem. Have a nice trip. Safe travels to you. If, if Pharaoh had responded in that way, we would never have recorded for us the display of Yahweh's power and glory that are displayed in the plagues, that are displayed in the Passover lamb, that are displayed in the parting of the Red Sea, which subsequently Paul will point to in 1 Corinthians and say that is a precursor to Jesus rescuing us and delivering us from the captivity of sin and death through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, none of that would have been recorded for us and would have been possible were it not for Pharaoh's disobedience and refusal to let my people go. And so God says that he used Pharaoh's life, his position, he raised him up to bring him glory, to display his power and the glory of his name through the obedience, the, the disobedience, excuse me, occasioned by the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And so Paul then provides this summary statement in verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. So we've seen the positive side of verse 18 already. He has mercy on whom he has mercy. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. That's quoted from, that's a repeat of verse 15, which is a quote from Exodus 33. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Mercy and compassion are good, right? They are expressions of God's love. And so this is a fleshing out of the first part of verse 13, which is at the end of what we looked at last time, 
when God said, Jacob, I loved, this is a fleshing out of that. As he shows mercy and compassion on whom he will show mercy and compassion. And that's the positive side of predestination. But there's a negative side. And the negative side is what we saw at the end of verse 13. Esau I hated. Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. I passed over Esau to set my saving love on Jacob. I let Esau go on. I I released him to his own wickedness that he might receive the due punishment of his wickedness. And that second half of verse 13 is now fleshed out in verse 18. Not only does God have mercy on whomever he wills, but he hardens. He hardens whomever he wills. And just as God's choice of who will be the recipients of his grace and his compassion and his mercy is not contingent on anything outside of himself, so his hardening of some is not conditioned on anything outside of himself. Both God's election of individuals unto salvation is unconditional, and so is his hardening. The parallelism of these verses allow us to conclude nothing different. So what is the hardening that Paul refers to here? Well, it comes from the story in Exodus dealing with Pharaoh. And in that story, some 19 different times, it talks about the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Now, sometimes it talks about Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Sometimes it talks about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. Other times it just describes the hardness of his heart. And it doesn't explicitly say who did the hardening. Though most of the time we can imply that it is God who is doing the hardening. But from the context of that story in chapters 4 through 14 of Exodus, where we read about the story of Pharaoh and the hardness of his heart, we can, we can arrive at a pretty good definition of what that word hardness means. The hardening of one's heart. So I would define it as this. The act or process of generating a general disposition of disobedience and rebellion. The act or process of producing, creating this general disposition of disobedience and rebellion against God. And that's what we see in Pharaoh, right? We see it over and over and over again. No, I won't let him go. No, I won't let him go. No, I'll refuse. This this general disposition to, to disobey the word of God. So the question becomes, who's responsible for the hardening of Pharaoh's heart? It's a critical question, isn't it? Who's responsible? Is it God or is it Pharaoh? Because as we go through the story, we see both. In chapter 7, verse 3, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Later in that that chapter, it it says that, uh, Pharaoh's heart was hard. In chapter 8, verse 15, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen to the people, to Moses and Aaron. And on and on it goes throughout this story. But if you're in Exodus, turn back to chapter 4. I want to show you the very outset of this story. The very outset of this story with Moses and Pharaoh and the escape from captivity in Israel. In chapter 4, Moses is still in the Midianite desert, and God shows up to him in the burning bush, 
And God tells Moses that, that, that he's going to tell, he, he wants him to go back to Egypt and he wants them to meet with Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And in chapter 4, verse 21, God tells Moses what he can expect from Pharaoh in response. This is what, Moses, this is what you can expect to hear from Pharaoh. This is the response that you can expect from him and why. Exodus 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, See that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart. And then a purpose statement. So that he will not let the people go. So God says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. Before before there's any other description of the hardness of his heart, God says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart when you do this. And the reason, so that he, Pharaoh, will not let the people go. Now, why would God do that? Why, why would God, isn't that why he's sending Moses back to Egypt to begin with? So that his people would be let go? So that they would be released out of Pharaoh's hands? Why then would he harden Pharaoh's heart so that he won't let him go? It, it seems like God is shooting himself in the foot here. Seems self-defeating. But let's go and a- answer that question. Why would God do this? Why would God harden Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go? Well, that brings us to Exodus 9, verse 16, which is quoted in Romans 9, verse 17. Speaking to Pharaoh, God says, But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power and so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart and the purpose was so that he would use Pharaoh's disobedience and rebellion and hardening to show his power and to show his glory, the glory of his name to all the earth. Now at this point, I need to issue a couple of redirects I want you to miss these. First, first redirect is this. The fact that God hardened Pharaoh's heart before Pharaoh self-hardened his heart does not in any way mean that God hardened an innocent man. doesn't mean that. It may be recorded that God first hardens Pharaoh's heart, but this doesn't mean that Pharaoh's heart wasn't already hard. This is the lost condition of man that Paul spent the better part of the first three chapters of this book that we're walking through, the letter to the Romans, trying to drive into us. None is righteous. No, not one. None does good. In other words, all of our hearts are hard to God. They all have this general disposition of disobedience and rebellion to God. So God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart doesn't make it hard to begin with. It just ensures that it stays hardened. The second redirect, consequent to that, that even though it is God who hardens Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh is still held responsible for his disobedience and his rebellion. Now, how can that be, right? How can God still hold Pharaoh accountable 
for his disobedience and his rebellion when it is God who hardens his heart and causes his heart to stay hard. Well, this is the objection that we'll look at next week. Paul raises this objection in verse 19. He says, well, some of you are going to say, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Who can resist his hardening? And so we'll deal with that in detail next week. But the bottom line here is this. God hardens Pharaoh's heart, whose heart is already hard because of his sin and rebellion against God. But God further hardens his heart, not because of the existing hardness of his heart, because remember, all of our hearts are hard before God. So it's not because his heart is hard, I'm going to harden it more. No. He does it simply because of his sovereign will. And he does it so that he could use Pharaoh's disobedience and rebellion and hardening to display his power and the glory of his name to all the earth. So how does this relate to the justness of God? The fairness of God? Because remember, that's what Paul is laying out for us here. That's his thesis. God's just and unconditional election. How does this support that? Well, first, it's interesting to note how Paul doesn't seek to support his thesis through the story of Pharaoh. Paul doesn't attempt to use the fact that Pharaoh's heart was already hard as the means by which he seeks to support his thesis that God is just an unconditional election. He could have, right? That, that seems to make sense, right? Well, of course God is fair in this because Pharaoh's heart was already hard. Of course he's going to harden it. But Paul doesn't do that. Out of all of the verses that he could have chose, we just looked at a few of them, all of the verses that he could have pointed to to say, see, Pharaoh's heart was already hard, so God was just in hardening Pharaoh's heart. He doesn't do that. Instead, he chooses a verse that gets to the very core of the ultimate purpose of God. He says in verse 17, For the scriptures say to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Just as we said earlier, God is always about the display of his glory and his grace. And the display of his power and glory and grace is seen both in his unconditional of some sinners to salvation, and it is also seen in his unconditional hardening of other sinners to their just and deserved judgment. And so, verse 18, he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. And in both, he is displaying the true nature of his power and glory and grace. And for that, he is right and just and fair. So, let's step back for a moment. How do we apply, how do we apply this? What are the implications of this for our walk with Jesus today. I've got four of them. There are many. I want to suggest four implications. And I want to encourage you to flesh these out in your base groups this week, this week when you meet with them. Application, implication number one. We need to learn how to judge fairness and rightness from God's perspective, not our own. When we think it 
unfair of God to choose some and not others. It is because we're judging fairness based on our actions and based on how it affects us. And if I'm just as sinful as the next guy, and if God chooses to save me and not him, well, then I charge him with unfairness. But from God's perspective, it's perfectly fair. Because God's point in choosing and in hardening is to bring glory to himself. And that is fair, and that is right. And it is only fair, and it is only just, and it is only right for God to give glory where it is due, and it is only due to himself. And so in choosing one over another based on nothing in the one or the other, it is God who is displayed as powerful and glorious and gracious. What is fair for us, what is fair for all of us, is judgment. And God selecting some to spend eternity with him anyways is not an assault on his fairness, but it is an affirmation of his glorious grace. Application number two. We need to come to grips with the fact that unconditional election is good news. It may be difficult to wrestle with. It may be hard to accept. But it is good news. And it's good news for both the unbeliever and and the believer. Unconditional election is, is, is good news for the unbeliever. How can that be? Well, because the unbeliever cannot say, I can't be elect. I'm too sinful. I'm too evil. I've gone too far. I, 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 can't, I can't be elect. The unbeliever cannot say that. Because one's election unto salvation is not based on anything you do or don't do, but it's based solely on the sovereign grace and mercy of God. But unconditional election is also good news for the believer because it means that, that our assurance of salvation goes beyond our beliefs, it goes beyond our actions, it goes beyond, beyond our choice, and it goes to the very root of the eternal decrees of God. You are saved not because of anything you say or anything you do. You're saved because God said it ought to be so. And so your assurance is not based on anything in you or anything about you, but your assurance is based on the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God himself. That's good news. Thirdly, third implication here, we should be reminded still of the necessity of faith. Faith is still necessary. In, in speaking about God's unconditional election, we must affirm that faith is still necessary. It is the very next chapter in Romans 10, 9 and 10, where Paul will say, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one, is, one confesses and is saved. God's election of us is unconditional. I believe that's what this passage and others are saying. God's election of us unto salvation is unconditional. 
but our justification is not. Our justification is conditional, and it is conditional upon faith. Those who place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be rescued from what we all deserve will be saved. Those who do not place their faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope to be saved from what we all deserve will not be saved. God's election does not justify. It merely identifies those who will be justified by faith. And so fourthly, consequently to that, because God's unconditional election is what identifies those who will be justified by faith in Jesus, then that means there is no boasting for those who are saved by Jesus. No boasting whatsoever. Paul made this clear back in Romans chapter 3. What then of boasting may it never be? A biblical understanding of the doctrine of unconditional election ought to leave us humbled to the core. Anyone who walks away from Romans 9 prideful that they've been chosen by God has missed the entire point that Paul is trying to make. We are sinners deserving of judgment. But God desiring to display his glorious grace, sovereignly sets his saving love on some, and those on whom he sets his saving love humbly profess faith in Jesus Christ as their only hope, and they are delivered from sin's grip and redeemed back to the Father as worshipers. Church, may we in deep and genuine humility, praise and worship him for his glorious grace. Let's pray.